0: This podcast was recorded on May 28, 2020. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or of its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. <laughs>
1: Welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm here today with my co-host, uh, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And uh, today we have some external guests joining us, but before we do that, uh, we want to give you a market update here. Uh, sitting here, day 7070 of quarantine, um, from or work from home, safety at home, whatever the measures we call it. And uh, so we want to get timely, get on top of the market. So Sam, why don't you kick us off with what we've seen since last week?
2: Yeah, sounds good. So the roundup on the market as of close of business Wednesday, March or sorry, May 27th is that the S&P 500 continues to march up from its March 23rd lows. Uh, it's up 4% on the week and uh, that puts it at a negative 5% handle or so on the year to day basis. Uh, that's just about 10% from its, uh, its all time highs. So we'll see if that trend continues. On the bond front, the Barclays U.S. aggregate is up about 40 basis points on the week, putting it up a positive 5% on the year. Gold uh, futures on the front month contract are down 2% for the week, uh, putting it up to 12% on the year. Copper, LME copper is down 2% on the week minus 15% on the year. And WTI crude oil futures are up uh, 1% this week, but that still makes it on a month to date again through May 27th up 74%. But for a year to date it's still down 46%. Yeah, Sam, uh, on
1: that note, interesting to see that, you know, we've seen this rebound in some risk assets, but commodities have been the one area that really have not benefited at at this point uh, of seeing investor demand. So just important to note that.
2: Yeah, and that's right. And I would say that a lot of the commodity price action, at least with energy and uh, the industrial metals seemed to reflect the, the overall economy a little bit better, I would say. But, you know, that 74% month to date positive performance on CL is also on the, the back of uh, some pretty weak data that uh, price prints that we had. Uh, coming in through April as well. Um, yeah. So just for everybody's podcast?
1: sake, CL is the the ticker for WTI crude oil. So uh, Sam's a commodity guy, so just want to make sure everybody understands that.
2: That's right. So we'll see if all that stuff holds and what the, some of the, the the divergences are that uh, that that we see between some of the risk markets here. Moving on to the sovereign front on the 10 year uh, yield part of the curve. Treasuries continue to be somewhat range bound, just uh, about 68 basis points uh, through last night. The boond is uh, still right around 40 basis points. Uh, negative, that is negative 40 basis points and JGBs. Guess what? They're at zero again. In terms of cash spreads on bonds uh, for the IG market, we have them set right at 175. So in about 20 basis points over a previous week. High yield uh, US are at 650 in about 70 basis points over previous week and EM also in about 30 basis points to put the, uh, the cash spread at 425. So you are seeing that uh, that grind tighter and spreads uh, and uh, you know positive price movements across those areas of credit as well.
1: Yeah, I think on that note too, Sam. One thing to point out too, it seems that uh, the high yield and emerging market bonds have really benefit, benefited from the rally in oil prices back to kind of more reasonable levels above the 30 handle in TI and in Brent trading above 35 these days. And so I think it is important to see that it it isn't just a a risk on and couple it's it's been somewhat decoupled from the equity market rally. Ah, uh, but you're starting to see improvement there in some of those names because they are heavily um, weighted by those those sectors of the market, specifically energy.
2: Absolutely. So, moving on to the economic front, uh, starting off as we always do with initial jobless claims. Looks like another. Uh, we just got the uh, the numbers today, and another 2.1 million filed, uh, bringing the total to now over 40, just shy of 41 million over the last 10 weeks since most states and communities began to shelter at home. Uh, on the commu- continuing claims front, the 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 amount of people on that uh, on that data set actually declined by almost four million. It's now at twenty one million, which is somewhat puzzling. Uh, some people are saying that it's possible that it points to the fact that individuals are getting back on the payroll again. I'm not quite sure I buy that completely. Um And I think before we get too excited about a drop, you know like this on a week over week basis, I think it merits a little bit more reflection.
1: Yeah, Yeah. and there is some nuance in some of that data that some states, uh, some heavy uh, unemployment states, such as Florida, report biweekly. So there's some kind of noise in that data set as well. But uh, as we like to talk about, one data point doesn't make a trend, nor does two. Need to see some persistence in that but it is somewhat uplifting to see that it's only down to on the unemployment insurance it's down to 21 million bad news is there's another 2 million in the queue for next week so we'll have to see how that materializes but at least there is some uplifting news in all this negative data set that we're covering today
2: yeah and hopefully some of that uplifting news uh, translates over to the actual uh, jobs report with unemployment claims so we can uh, discuss that a little bit later i would assume uh, moving on to the Fed balance sheet, it now stands over $7 trillion with an additional 100, over $100 billion, uh, over prior week. GDP and uh, G- and its components had a sector A uh, slightly more negative versus the, the first estimate. So now it's at negative 5.0% on an annualized quarter over quarter basis. Uh, part of that was um, also reflected within uh, a revision in the personal consumption, which actually did see some signs of improvement there uh, at negative 6.8%. Again, on the second estimate on the first quarter. Um, US GDP annualized quarter over quarter. Durable goods came out today in negative 17.2%. This is the second worst print on the month to month, month over month basis going back to 1992. It bears mentioning that the worst was in August of uh, 2014 at negative 18.8, but that followed on the backs or the heel of the best, the historical best, uh, the previous month at positive 23%. So I'm sure you know, that's. It's
1: funny you, you mention that because there, there's a lot of uh, literature out there when it comes to equity market returns, and people say, you know, you see these charts that are extremely misleading, I, I think. Where they show, hey, if you if you omitted the like worst 1% of trading days, then here's what the growth of a dollar would look like. But what a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of those um, significantly negative days are around some of the best performing days as well, because it's a lot of volatility and noise in the market. And so not only do you see that in financial markets as people are trying to digest the future, but also sometimes in economic data series, as you rightfully point out here, Sam.
2: Yeah, and you know, it's, it's it goes back to what we've been talking about is are we in a bear or a bull market with the S&P 500 right now, right? Uh, with the fact that we're up about 30% from the lows uh, back in March 23rd that we hit on the S&P 500, which in itself, March 23rd was the low from the previous high, down about, was it, 35% from yeah. there, so... Barons, what Jeffrey Gunlock talks a lot about a lot here with our um, landscape in California with Mount Whitney being the highest peak uh, point in California at least and uh, right next to the lows in Death Valley as well so just a little bit of a uh, trivia there I suppose uh, the right, so we-
1: well before we move <laughs> on to more economic data you yeah. know let, let's introduce our guests uh, because I'd like to introduce them because I think you know the things that we want to talk about are some of their, data that they focus on. So um, joining us today is Bart Van Ark, who's the Executive Vice President and the Global Chief Economist at the Conference Board. Um, He was appointed back in 2008 and he oversees the production of a widely watched economic indicators and various forecasts. So welcome, Bart. Hi, Jeff and Sam, how are you? Uh, Excellent. And also joining us because we had the ability to get two guests today. First time, I think we've had that on The Sherman Show. We have Eric Lund as well. He's also he's a senior economist at the Conference Board, and he's responsible for much of the organization's work in U.S. and Chinese economies, and he's based in New York City. So welcome, Eric, as well. Thanks so much. Right. So I cut you off, Sam, because I know where you're going, because I have a list of your economic (laughs) data prints, uh, because we had to get organized with having four people talking today. So why don't you lead us into the data that just came out today, or the most recent data prints from the Conference Board, and let's lead that into our conversation.
2: All right. So last week we had Conference Board print on leading on the leading economic index year over year down 11.5 percent on the tail of a negative 7.3 percent. And as you know, Jeff, this is one of the the granddaddy indicators that we look at to, to determine if uh, the economy is in a recession and anytime it drops down to below that zero, it seems to be a pretty good signal that we are currently in a recession. So we'll talk a little bit about that as we also talk about uh, the conference boards consumer confidence measures as well as its subcomponents within that uh, data set. And one thing to note is that the consumer confidence uh, print that just came out earlier this week seems to have slowed or found some footing after a couple back to back very sharply negative prints. This uh, current print is at 86.6 versus the previous periods print of 85.7. So some people pundits out there are wondering if this herald or are heralding this actually as uh, as evidence of a potential recovery. So we'll hear their thoughts on that. I'm somewhat uh, skeptical, but then again, I'm skeptical by nature. So. Uh, With that, I think that'd be a good segue into some discussion points around some of the things that our economist friends here are thinking about.
1: Yeah, so I think that uh, let's start first off and, um, you know, let's talk about the LEI and and how it relates out there. When you talk about uh, LEI, again, stands for Leading Economic Indicator. Maybe you can tell us a little bit of the work that you guys have done to create that index and why uh, folks like us rely so heavily on looking at some of these uh, or this um, aggregate indicator that you guys have created.
3: So uh, the Conference Board, as you mentioned, produces a, a variety of uh, of indicators for uh, a number of countries that try to grade, gauge economic activity. Um, we have our LEI, which is a leading uh, economic uh, indicator. We have uh, the CEI, which is uh, more of a concurrent one where we're gauging what, what happens right now in the economy. And then we have a lagging one, uh, which gauges uh, hit, uh, activity looking backwards. LEI is to try to give economists and, and financial professionals and business executives an idea the economy is trending to nine months into the future. And we do this by sort of uh, uh, compiling uh, a, a an index that's generated out of 10 to 12 to 13, maybe uh, indicators that have some sort of uh, correlation with future economic performance. And we do this for a bunch of countries. So the, the, the data point that you just mentioned uh, for the U.S. Uh, we, we just released uh, uh, last week, this was for the month of April, and what we saw was a, a very large decline. However, the decline that we saw wasn't as large as the one that we saw in March. Uh, the March decline in the LEI was actually the largest uh, uh, decline in that index's 60-year history. Um, so pairing these two months together, yes, uh, the LEI is quite negative. Yes, it definitely puts the U.S. into sort of this recessionary territory. Um, the question really is sort of how long and how deep of a contraction are we talking about? Um, and the LEI can give us some hints about that, but it can't really answer the question in and
4: of itself. So I think I think uh, Jeff and Sam, was interesting about uh, LEI this time? is that, as Eric said, it it had a very sharp dive, uh, actually unprecedented. We've never seen in the history of the LEI such a rapid decline in March and in April. But the other thing that was very interesting is that normally an LEI starts to decline before a recession hits. So when you look at the global recession or whether you look at the uh, tech bubble in 2001, the LEI would come down before the recession hits, right? So it's it's providing you a lead. This time, because it was a shock, this pandemic suddenly happened, it just hit right at the moment that we will presumably also begin to date a recession. So that was, that was very, very unique about what we saw this time in the LEI.
3: And I'm going to follow up with Bard uh, on that. And and the reason that it is so unique is because you know classically these kinds of indicators are designed to track you know classical business cycles of expansion and recovery and 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 you know recession. But what we're going through right now is not the result of a, a classical business cycle kind of uh, 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 movement. We we've seen a, a, a shock, an exogenous shock to the system, which is COVID-19. So it's hard. That's it's it's hard to use these. That's the reason this this didn't really point to. You know a recession was on its way because nobody knew because it was a sort of a tail risk uh uh out on the edge
1: yeah no definitely and it seems to be that in general uh, and we've nailed that we've talked not nailed this we've talked about this numerous times about how typically it's the instability of the system that it's built debts building leverage is building, there's a lot of uh, kind of warning signs about um, about the impending recession. However, it typically takes some form of exogenous shock to really set that off. And I think we've seen that here with the, the case of COVID, but when, when I look at the, um, you know, one thing we've always liked to look at is pairing some of your indices together, something like the expectations versus present situation. And expectations for the last year or, so, or probably 18, 24 months actually, had been very depressed, um, but the current situation was doing fine, doing fine, or present situation is doing fine. Then all of a sudden, as you as you talk about here too, massive collapse in present situation to kind of coincide with where the expectations were. And now we have kind of the opposite effect where now the present situation is dipped significantly below expectations. So yeah, h- yeah. how do you guys interpret that today?
4: Yeah. And, and that's most clearly visible in the consumer confidence index. So that's actually a, a really good, a really good transition. It, it's true You uh, just before we talk about what happened now, it's true that before this crisis hit, expectations was beginning to move sideways. And frankly, that simply had to do with the fact that this had been such a long expansion. Let's not forget, we have been in an 11-year-long expansion. We've never seen that before. So everybody kind of felt like, OK, I mean, I can't get a lot better than it is. So these things started to move sideways, when you, whether you look at the LEI or at the Consumer Confidence Index, they both moved sideways for quite a while. And indeed, we all said, you know, there's always some kind of shock that is then going to occur. Well, that occurred, that was the pandemic uh, that happened, and what we then saw in the consumer confidence index was just an unprecedented decline in present conditions. So the assessment of consumers of current of current uh, business conditions and current employment conditions really was was huge. Uh, never seen something. It came down by ninety points just in April, and actually in, in May again it uh, it did come down by another um, um, yeah you know, another couple of points. So so it didn't really significantly uh, improve. What happened to expectations, however, is that if 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 the present situation goes down so much, if if everybody is so negative about the current situation, it only can get better in many people's minds. And so the expectations index, it actually improved a little bit in April, and then it improved further in May, not dramatically, but just a little. And given the nature of the crisis, it was surprising. But then you need to look at what's underlying that, right? So there are three, three expectations uh, components that we're talking about. Business conditions, employment and income. Now, all the improvement that we were seeing in expectations in May was due to business conditions, so it had to do with the fact that consumers saw that the economy is beginning to go uh, open up, so you expect that things will be better in a couple of months time than there are now. When it comes to employment, it's true that there are more consumers who think that there will be more jobs available than less, but it didn't really improve a lot compared to what it was last month. But the big news is on the income side, because on the income side, we actually saw more consumers being negative about income than positive. And and that's been quite unique. You, you really rarely see that, uh, you know, negativity is actually outpacing positivity. So, you know, that is that's really an important piece of information, because now that, you know, consumers may go out of their home as businesses open up. The question is, once they arrive at a restaurant or at the mall, how much are they really going to spend? I mean, many lost their job. Many have seen salary cuts and things like that. So. This, this supply shock is gradually moving into demand crisis, and that's what the consumer confidence index really is telling us. So I agree with you, Sam, when you said earlier that you are skeptical about how big this improvement is. I think that's true for us too. We don't think this is a great signal that things will get a lot better soon.
1: Yeah, and I think. That, the, oh, I was going to say that, I think that's absolutely right because I think as humans we have this in, uh, innate uh, desire to want to have optimism. Otherwise, it just makes for a, a painful. Right right. and And you point that out that, okay, the business are ripping up, up, so you see that, But then the income component, because income is really earned two ways, is the way I think about it. I think about it, it's either capital or it's labor. Right. So either you have earnings through an income stream via your job or you have investments. And so we know the unemployment situation. Then when you think about income generating investments, all of a sudden we have a Federal Reserve that's cut rates to the zero to the effective lower bound, they call it now um, near zero. And so what you see is that I can I can I can uh, empathize with folks out
4: there that are really skeptical about the income prospects for the near term.
0: Yeah, and, and again,
4: on, on the, on the uh, market side, I mean, consumers are by far more dependent on wages than they are on the financial markets. So it's really the wage component that is dominating here as far as the income components are concerned.
2: I was also wondering, too, with the income component, um, you know, if it's a, people are coming, you know, certain individuals are coming to a realization that, you know, especially the ones who are on the, the lower side of the pay scale, that, you know, we've been hearing the stories about how given the, the fiscal stimulus measures with the, at the federal level, this additional $600 a week uh, for 2400 a month potentially for those who are unemployed getting that additional piece that they may be earning more through this uh, fisc- the stimulus measure of unemployment right. than they were when they're actually getting the job. I wonder if it's just a, a feeling of despair too, realizing that They knew they're probably at the lower end of the pay scale, but now they just see by how much, if they can actually just, you know, get paid uh, more through unemployment insurance than actually going out and working.
4: Yeah, and it really plays out quite differently, right? So, I mean, people uh, who receive, for example, the government paychecks, uh, the stimulus checks, you know, people who live from paycheck to paycheck, they really spend that money. Uh, But a lot of people sort of in the middle income category will actually have put that money aside. If you you can just get by and you know the nature of this crisis and the risk of, you know, uh, possible new waves of Corona and everything else, you're going to save this money. And, you know, tomorrow we'll get the numbers on savings for April. But in March, the savings in the United States already went up to 13.1%. That was in March. In April, it will go up a lot further. So, you know, you send people money, but they're not necessarily all spending it, except for really the lower end of the pay scale. Right, which makes sense. I mean, this thing is is, is more
1: regressive when you have these type of impacts. It yeah. obviously hits the, the lower income and the lower wealth folks uh, the, the hardest. So let's talk about the, you, you you brought up the idea about an exogenous shock to the system that no one could see coming. I think uh, nassim Taleb has been out there categorizing this as a black swan. You know he he popularized that idea of, of the really extreme on the tail risk uh, hate him or love him he, he seems to be very uh, uh very divisive when it comes to people's feelings about him and uh for those of you interested uh, he had a pretty nice uh, sparring war with uh, mr asness in the last week on twitter uh, so there's some there's some financial entertainment there, uh, but let's talk about the COVID uh, impact here. And so you guys did some research about the impact, and maybe you could lead us through kind of your study and some of the conclusions that you guys have come back uh, come up with, uh, just using the the underlying data.
3: So you're talking about maybe our our scenario analysis for the U.S. economy.
1: Yes, that's correct on the U.S. economy. I'm I'm sorry, I wasn't clear. No, no. That's fine. So, you know, typically the conference
3: board puts out a a single uh, forecast for the U.S. economy. We do a lot of forecasts for other countries, too, uh, but the U.S. one is one of the ones that I'm most involved in. We usually use the expenditure uh, approach to cutting apart GDP, right? So that's the consumption, uh, investment, government spending, and net exports that that you learned about in high school or in college economics. Wrap our head around how this virus was impacting the economy using that model, and we had a really hard time doing it. Uh, So what we instead did is we pivoted and we started to generate a a new model that actually looks at the amount of value that's being generated uh, by all of the major uh, industries and sectors across the U.S. economy. And so it's easier for us to think about how does this impact travel and tourism uh, as opposed to mining or agriculture. Uh, We can kind of set our own stories for each one of these these, uh, industries and see what falls out in terms of uh, the overall uh, economic growth. So we did this. Uh, we, we built this model. We, we, we looked at these underlying industries and uh, we were able to, to come up with sort of a sense of maybe what could happen. But there's so much opacity and volatility in what's happening with the virus uh, that we weren't able to commit to a single narrative on this. And so what we did instead is we, we generated uh, two to three to four, depending upon how far back you go. Uh, different scenarios in terms of what might happen to the economy uh, at large. Uh, and at this point, you know, we have we have three scenarios that we envision for the economy uh, here in the U.S. Uh, the first is sort of a, a U-shaped uh, a recovery, uh, wherein there's sort of a gradual opening that occurs over the course of uh, of 2020. Uh, there's a scenario uh, in which we see a, a much more rapid opening, uh, in which case the degree of the economic impact uh isn't as severe um as it would be under the gradual sort of scenario uh but then if we open up too quickly we run the risk of letting the virus get a foothold again and uh and, and basically seeing a second wave and a second set of sort of social distancing policies that fall out of that which leads to a w kind of growth scenario uh, which is the worst of of all of them so you know at this point these are the three sort of ways that we're looking at this for the u.s economy um it's it, it varies day to day in terms of which one we think has the highest probability, uh, but I think certainly for, for for major businesses which are you know the the kinds of clients that we mostly are involved with, that U-shaped scenario that has the more uh, gradual opening allows businesses uh, around the country uh, to sort of reduce risk a little bit uh, and to plan how to climb out of this. Um, so. We're a little more partial to that U-shape uh, uh, scenario than we are to, uh, to any of the other ones.
4: Yeah, it's really a bit of an alphabet soup, right? I mean, you've got V's and W's and U's and everything, and we go through that as well. And Eric is correct that you know the U shape is the one that we think is more likely. Although some people now talk about this sort of swoosh scenario using the Nike logo, and you know the idea there being that you'll have some quick recovery now in May and in June. I mean, if you if you close everything down and you open things up, you'll get a pretty good growth rate, right? If you start from nowhere. Uh, so you can have May and June recoveries, but then it's going to move sideways because this is really moving, as we discussed earlier, really into more of a demand crisis. But I think there are two there are two things that are really hard in all these scenarios for us. I mean, the first round effects are easy. So those industries that are being impacted by social distancing, as Eric mentioned, like, you know, air travel and restaurants and so on, you can figure out, you know, they've been hard hit. Once they open up, they will slowly come back. But it is the second round effects, which is sort of, you know, if this crisis becomes longer, turns longer and it becomes a sort of normal, uh, quote unquote, recession, then it becomes much more widespread. And then it's much harder to actually map out how that's actually going to impact. The second yeah, thing. And
1: so, we, and so on that, um, yeah, you know, as sure. I think about it, I, I'm more partial to the what you call the swoosh. I try not to advertise for other companies on the podcast. So I call it a square root function. Yeah. That's kind of how I think about it. Um, because I, when I think about a U, I think about the coming back on the other side. It gets us back exactly to where they are, and there's symmetry around it. So again, that's too mathematical thinking, but uh, I, I get the gist of what, where you guys are coming. And yeah. so when you think about that, like, how do you think about the economic and labor labor recovery functions? What they look like? And you know, there's already, you know, there was already this polarization of wealth. Um, there was the you know purported, or there is a lot of evidence on wage inequality um, across uh, this last uh, recovery since the Great Financial Crisis. And so, you know, there's there's been there's anecdotes out there, which you're always going to get with policies, anecdotes where people are making more on unemployment insurance than going back to work. Um, and then there's also this idea that a lot of these people who are unemployed that aren't showing up in the official unemployment data that we saw in the last jobs report are somewhat they're they're still employed but they're just not showing up for work and so it's a caveat that you know it's still thinking that we're going to have a recovery of all those jobs back so how do you guys start to think about that and model that when you're trying to forecast uh, what this kind of recovery looks like
3: eric um there was a
1: lot in there i know eric so yeah uh, (laughs)
3: yeah pick one for me to to address
1: yeah so uh, let's talk about the the Let's just talk about what is the labor market recovery function look like? That's something that a lot of people aren't focused on. There's just this assumption, as you mentioned, that the restaurants will open back up, hotels will open up, and capacity will be back where it was, or at least very close to um, where it was, let's say, in January of, of this year.
4: Well, let's start with the labor market. I mean, it's definitely not sort of the same across the labor market. If you look currently at people who lost their job, they tend to be younger people. They tend to be minorities, and they tend to be women, and the groups that actually represent all those three are actually the ones that are hurt most. So, so we definitely see that the immediate effects uh, of these inequalities are quite large. Now, the question is how quickly can come uh, people back. I mean, a lot of these people are working in restaurants on low wages. Once these restaurants are open up, they will probably be higher to some extent, not all of them, but some of them. So it's a little hard to say what the longer term inequality effects of those are. But in the short term, there are huge inequality effects that are actually uh, exacerbated by this crisis.
1: Right. And, th- and that's what I'm thinking about, too. When it, it, the, if you look at the source of the economy, we always hear that it's a, it's such a significant it's significantly driven by the consumer. And one of those key attributes is the ability to earn income. And so we know that there's a lot of debt load out there and that you can, you know, there's there's some of that consumption is is based on debt, but you need to have the labor market recovery and wages to recover in order to really keep the economy going. So given your comments there and this displacement, how does that that impact the way you guys are thinking about the US economy?
3: That's one of the the points that Bart brought up earlier on. This is the whole second round sort of effects of of this turning into a more classical recession, right? The the, the initial shock of COVID was a supply side shock that that impacted businesses, right? Um, Manufacturers shut down, restaurants shut down, airlines shut down. Uh, And as a function of that, we've seen uh, the spike in initial unemployment claims. We've seen the spike in the official unemployment rate. and so the question then becomes okay so what what point does this supply side shock become a more classical demand side uh, a recession uh and that's an open question um we we think about this we try to 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 uh to, to watch data that are that are important in in determining that um but certainly that the longer businesses stay shut the longer the economy stays shut the more of the in, uh, the in income impact there is the higher the probability Uh, that this is going to have second-order impacts, and that this is going to turn into a a, a uh, uh, longer-term, more difficult-to-recover-from kind of uh, a recession.
4: So so one thing that I'd like to add to that is actually going back to an earlier comment that you made on the recovery of the financial market, because we, of course, also have been puzzled about how can it be that the financial market is recovering so quickly and the economy is not. So I was interested in, in comparing that performance with some previous big crises. So I compared it with the global recession uh, that we had in 2008 or 9, but also compared it with the depression of the 1930s. And actually the comparison with the depression is very interesting because what you see is that the decline that we've been seeing uh, until March 23rd, as you mentioned, was actually pretty close to what we've been seeing after the uh, collapse in October, 2027. Um, That was a similar period uh in which we saw this very rapid decline uh, uh happening interestingly we saw after a few months in 29 we saw also this kind of recovery uh, uh taking place and a lot of that recovery is like what it was today it's kind of the fomo thing like fear of missing out mm-hmm. so you know people are just expecting that things will be getting, will be coming to get better Um, And uh, that goes on for a while. But then in the 1930s, later in the early 1930s, you saw it come down again. And why did the market then start to come down again? Well, that was because, you know, we got something at that time. It was called the Smoot-Haley Act, uh, which was really this act that was the the, the beginning of uh, increased tariffs and import duties and protectionism. So you can see that, you know, at some point, the, the markets are going to adjust to the economic reality and the political reality that you're looking at.
1: Okay. Yeah. No. I think that's that's a very interesting point too. And so, like, when when you think about um, the financial markets, it it seems to me you mentioned FOMO, um, which uh, you know a lot of us have referenced um, in describing what's going on. People were taught in the post financial crisis um, that you buy the dip. And another thing out there besides buying the dip was in Fed we trust, right? And so that mantra of that the Fed. Will have your uh, have your back in in times of crisis and when markets collapse. I think it's it's only been amplified in this one. And and again, yeah. I, I'm not here to criticize the Fed for stepping in at this point. Uh, we can talk about the policies, how effective they'll be, but they're definitely trying to do something versus just sitting on their hands. So I think they need to be commended for that. But when you think about liquidity. I mean, uh, and, and you think about how what the Fed facilities have done and these various programs have done, they're really trying to create financial, they're relieving the financial markets of liquidity stress. But that doesn't solve the underlying crisis of, of um, you know, solvency. It doesn't under, uh, you know solve the problem of bad businesses. And so, you know, how, how do you, is there any way you can model the kind of Fed liquidity into these types of forecasts? Like when you're talking about the overall economy?
3: Art, I mean, you've talked a little bit about about the potential productivity, you know, changes that may result from this. Maybe you can
4: touch on that a little bit. Should yeah, absolutely. Touch- I think one of one one of the things that you you really have now to begin to think about once you you come out of this crisis is begin to think what is going to be the driver of recovery. Is that going to be you know increased investment, increased hiring? Or is it actually going to be increased things like productivity and more efficiency? Usually what you see, you know no crisis goes goes unwasted. So what you quite often see in a crisis is that, you know, some companies will go bankrupt. At the moment, they go bankrupt because of liquidity issues. But later on in the recession, they will go bankrupt simply because they aren't fit to actually deal with a long crisis and then be able to recover. So when you come out of a crisis, you get a recovery in terms of productivity growth, which, by the way, we badly needed because productivity had been declining for such a long time before we hit into this recession. The question, however, if that recovery is going to be quick enough uh, rapid enough to offset the fact you know, that companies are reluctant to invest and to rehire. So you've got multiple factors that are going to impact on this recovery. And, you know, it's been good that we had a lot of digital transformation happening before we got into this crisis, but it hasn't really fully translated that led into productivity. So maybe the fact that we're now all teleworking and doing uh, all these calls on video and so on is going to to be an acceleration of that kind of uh, digital transformation and productivity growth. But that, of course, still remains to be seen.
1: Right. No, and then and, and people were always speculating, well, is productivity be measured the same in this more digital world? And are we using the same type, you know, are we using kind of stale inputs and thinking about productivity? But I think the same thing on on kind of velocity here, uh, the velocity of money. And so what we've seen is we've seen a massive growth in M2. Um, mm. In the crisis, and really as of late, um, there's been a huge increase in M2. Um, but unless we get velocity, which has been declining for two decades, and maybe maybe the night maybe the late 90s were the aberration, and we should think about velocity differently. But uh, how do you how do you think about that when you know going back to the basic kind of GDP equation, thinking about um, you know money supply and velocity? How, how do you think that that gets impacted by this kind of post-COVID world?
3: Well. I- I mean, I, I'll take a stab at that. You know, with with a with a, a an increase in in M2, you know, as the Fed uh, is more active in, in, in ensuring liquidity in, in, in various markets, um, you know, Bart mentioned earlier on that we're seeing savings rates uh, arise uh, again and again. On Friday, we'll we'll get some new some new data out there. So you know, as as businesses are are more reluctant to invest, as consumers are more reluctant to spend, you can pump money in. But uh, unless you you sort of loosen the tap a little bit and allow it to flow more rapidly vis-a-vis uh, velocity,
0: you're not mm-hmm. going to really
3: see that 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 drum up uh, overall economic growth uh, vis-a-vis uh, GDP uh, uh, expanding more
4: rapidly. You gotta yeah, just you about, just can't create about, aggregate it's about, demand,
3: right? It's the, it's exactly. Kind of, it's, the, yeah. it's the M2 and the
4: V2 that are critical here. Yeah. Right. And that's one part of the story. The other part of the story goes back to this productivity issue. And that is where does all that liquidity, where does all that money go? and what we have seen you know the reason why i mentioned that we've seen this big productivity decline or slowdown happening before the crisis is because a lot of that liquidity got allocated to places where you didn't necessarily you know get a bit of a bang for your for your buck right i mean if you just if, if the stuff is for free it just gets wasted and i think the more we add to it I, that's to the early point that you made i mean it's great that the Fed is stepping in right now but uh, that's what you need you need a floor at this point in time the question is what is this going to do in the longer term and we know that in the longer term, this is creating misallocations. It's creating the. It's relating to inefficiencies and so on, and that makes the productivity recovery so much more difficult.
1: Right. Well, you mentioned that too, and you talk about that when you say misallocation. I assume you're talking about misallocation of capital and resources. But right. can we ever go to a post uh, a post Fed world? Because you you mentioned that too, and I think it's so critical here. We're talking about, you know, perhaps there's misallocation of capital and just throwing money at, at things. But how do we ever get out of this? We, we saw when the Federal Reserve, you know, when when Bernanke did QE originally back, at, back in the crisis, back in 08 and 09, um, what he said is, that, oh, it's temporary. We'll get out of it shortly. It took him eight years to, to actually start to try to unwind the balance sheet. Um, didn't really work that well. They did it for about 18 months or so. Got it down, you know, got it down about $800 billion or so. And then we had this problem. And here we, we've we increased the balance sheet by, you know, over $3 trillion from that level. And so th- the question is, is that are we kind of caught in this, uh, this kind of, uh, not, I won't call it a liquidity trap, but a Fed trap where the, we have to keep printing money just to keep the system going?
4: Well, it's true that it is—you know—it's it's eleven years since we hit in this new in this current recession that we're in, and it's only in the last three, four years before the recession that the Fed started to unwind the balance sheet again. So, it's true that it has taken a long time before we actually could hit that turning point, and. I think that experiment, which now is bigger actually than it was in 2008 or nine, will be repeated again, is how, how long does it take to actually begin unwinding? And I think that is going to be a critical question. Can we this time unwind faster or are we getting so addicted to all that uh, kind of additional liquidity that we're really, really in reality moving into what we call modern monetary financing? I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm amazed about the fact that, you know, four months ago, MMT was a uh, you know an extraordinary left wing idea that wasn't attempt, uh, wasn't really much uh, 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 appealing to uh, to the establishment and today i would say we're pretty close to what i think MMT is actually be about particularly if we keep this going for much longer
1: yeah well there's another discussion about extending some of these benefits out um, in the house today and you know trying to get more of these programs out there and you can see typically in these bills too that there's a, it, it definitely reeks of the MMT idea in there. And, you know, I think, uh, Sam, it maybe it's you that joked about it, but someone said, well, effectively, COVID, man, that Bernie won, you know, that, that his, his kind of <laughs> yeah. left-wing policies got through the, uh, got through the economy. But, um, you know, one thing you had mentioned is kind of um, how we were dealing with the world pre-COVID, and you talked about supply chains. And so uh, as I think about that, Eric, I know, I know you're the conference board expert on China, Maybe you can talk about, you know, what we were doing with China with the trade wars. We've seen re-escalation as of late again, uh, the Hong Kong issues. Brian, maybe you can give us some of your thoughts on what's going on in, in the Chinese mainland today.
3: Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, it's really a fascinating story um, with lots of twists and turns. But, I mean, really, I think it, to, to understand where we are now, you have to go back, you know, maybe about four years or so. Uh, or really around the uh, the, the election of, of uh, uh, the current administration. Um, you know, the 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 trend towards a more confrontational relationship between China and the U.S. had been had been growing uh, uh, well before that that point in time. Um, but certainly, the the way in which the U.S. And, and China has sort of interfaced over the last three years is is very much a, a function, possibly of of the the communication style of of the president. Um, we saw, you know, his first year in office, for the most part. Uh, the U.S. Uh, was was able to sort of confront NAFTA, renegotiate that. Uh, there was a lot of animosity towards Europe on trade, uh, but there was there wasn't a lot of, of movement actually on China itself until the second uh, year. Uh, that's when the the tariffs started to fly up. Uh, that's when uh, things really started to get more aggressive, and so this really kind of played out uh, over the course of of uh, late 2018 and throughout 2019. Um, with a series of negotiations going back and forth, things improving, things falling apart once again, uh, until January of this year, when we had a phase one trade agreement signed uh, between the two parties. Um, Now, the phase one really kind of picked the the low-hanging fruit uh, in terms of uh, 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 disagreements between the US and China, in terms of uh, the degree of the the trade imbalance and uh, maybe certain uh, market access issues. But there were a lot of other issues with respect to intellectual property, which uh, with with respect to uh, the way that China manages its economy that were not uh, uh, addressed. And those were going to be addressed in sort of the phase two deal. Uh, And then we had COVID hit, um, and COVID kind of threw all those chips up into the air again. So at present, uh, we have a situation in which Beijing is still uh, saying that it it wants to uh, uh, fulfill the the terms that it agreed to under the phase one deal. Uh, the U.S. is uh, uh, shaking the tree with respect to uh, things like uh, uh, China's uh, access to U.S. capital markets vis-a-vis the delisting story that I'm sure that you've been reading about. Uh, and then all of a sudden we have uh, the new uh, security law being introduced uh, at the National People's Congress in China. Uh, which uh, significantly sort of deteriorates the sort of freedoms uh, of, of people in Hong Kong, um, which the U.S. is threatening to to do uh, uh, unroll sanctions and and start to treat Hong Kong as a non-autonomous entity. So you know the the, the situation has gotten much worse in recent months. Um, I I'm not terribly pessimistic that Phase One uh, is going to fall apart, uh, but I really do not think. That there is any room for a phase two trade deal uh, to to you know be, be had before the end of this year, I'm not actually very optimistic that it can ever be had. Um, so, uh, and the Hong Kong issue, uh, we're going to have to watch and, and, and wait uh, and see what happens there. But certainly, on so many different dimensions, the relationship between Beijing and Washington is, has really spun out of control over the last two to three months.
1: Yeah. Well, no, I think and that's the big uh, wild card here is, um, you know, are these trade escalations at this point? Are they just, you know, being political chips um, as the administration seems to have used in the past or, you know, do they have more teeth to that? So I think we'll all have to stay tuned uh, to figure out. No. And
4: and that, and that, by the way, was uh, just the point that I was making comparing this with the 1930s, right? Because if yeah. you think about the timing of, you know, trade disputes, that timing is actually surprisingly close to what it was in early 1930, if you get that thing popping up again. The other thing I may want to quickly add here is I, I'm really, you know, the implication of this for supply chains, as you mentioned, could be quite substantial. I mean, there, there's this all this pressure now for what, what I call domestifying supply chains so or bringing supply chains back Uh, To the to to uh, to uh, within our borders, and you don't hear only hear that in the U.S. You also hear this in European countries, and I think it's frightening because let's not forget that we started offshoring because there were huge efficiency gains, largely passed on to the consumers. If we bring this back, we hear all companies saying. First of all, it will take a long time before we can do that. And it will be incredibly expensive. So, you know, the question is, who's going to pay for that? And if you think about one force that could potentially push up inflation, I think it could potentially be the domestifying of supply chains.
1: Right. No, that's definitely it. And, you know, it, it, as you'd mentioned, you said it's uh, you never let a good crisis go to waste. Mm. And I think, you know, that that's could be kind of the um, the post-COVID world. We could see a resurgence in U.S.-based manufacturing the likes, which, as you mentioned, Uh, could lead to uh, inflation through definitely increased wages uh, when it comes to the labor input side of the equation. But, um, you know, guys, I really appreciate this. It's been great. I think all our listeners can understand why we wanted to have you in a tandem. You know, you guys are both good uh, on a standalone basis, but it's like any good group out there. And so using some of my rap background, you know, I think, you know, Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg were better together, you know, Eric B and Rakim were good, to, much better together and definitely Method Man and Red Man. Neither of them can stand alone. They'd come together so great. And so uh, with that, you know, I want to I give you guys kudos. We thank you for having you on. Keep putting out the great work you guys do. Um, for those of you, those listeners out there, before we go to Sam's favorite part of the show, is there a way that they can follow your work, uh, either in some sort of social media or some websites? Well, there's
4: always Twitter uh, and just go Twitter, the Conference Board, and, and you'll get to us or our own tweets and just go to the Conference Board website. We have actually a dedicated website where every day there's new content uh, on COVID-19, conferenceboard.org. Uh, and that's the place to find everything that we have.
1: Okay, well, thanks for that. But before we let you go, Sam has a favorite part of the show. It's not just the economic recap. It's called Sherman Says. And Sam, why don't you kick us off?
2: All right. That uh, favorite part, as Sherman says, as you mentioned. And the rules of the road here, gentlemen, are that I will offer a series of prompts. I'll begin with Jeff Sherman and then move to Bart and then to you, Eric, and then we'll rotate, rinse and repeat on that. And. What I'd like from each of you is a short top of mind response to my prompts. And if you wanna be incredibly concise, you can limit that to one word even, that's the challenge. So I'm gonna start out with Mr. Sherman with consumer confidence. Bottoming. Bart, existing home sales.
4: Glimmer of hope.
2: Eric, Hong Kong.
3: A potential catalyst for a downward spiral.
2: Sherman with summer vacation.
4: Vacation from home. (laughs) GDP. Unprecedented decline.
2: Infrastructure.
4: We'll take it if you'll give it.
2: Social gatherings. Memories. (laughs) Austerity. Not again. (laughs) (laughs) Urban flight.
3: Welcome to the suburbs.
2: (laughs) Home offices. (laughs) Uh, Challenging. Work offices.
1: What is that? (laughs) I remember when we used to do that.
2: And the final one goes out to Eric with U3 unemployment rate.
1: Autumn. All right, there you have it. So once again, thanks, guys, for joining. Uh, For those of you still hanging in there on the Sherman Show here, we've had Bart Van Ark as well as Eric Lund, uh, both from the conference board. They've been great. Uh, they put out a, a great amount of information on their website um you know, follow them on twitter they put out great charts good stuff to really help you understand and think about kind of the inputs and, and trying to reconcile you know what's going on in this crazy crazy world today so bart eric thank you so much for joining us in this uh, safer from home episode of the sherman show thanks for having us you're welcome and for thanks. those of you that want to follow more of our information in addition to the twitter um as they said uh, the conference board is their handle uh, remember, you can follow us at Sherman Show Pod. You can get it on Stitcher, you can get on SoundCloud, uh, Google Play, iTunes, all those great places. Uh, we don't have the Joe Rogan contract. We didn't get $100 million for this, but we're still cranking the content out for you guys. So tune in next week. We'll have a returning guest back on uh, to cover the May, uh, May Madness and the rand up that's happened there. And we'll speak with you next week. Take care all.
0: presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor. Including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Double Line is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as Constituting the giving of investment advice by any double-line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any double-line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2020 Double-Line Capital